Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to Very Loose Women live on Resonance 104.4 FM. Or maybe you're having a listen on the podcast. I'm Nikki and I'm joined in the studio today by Leo. Hi. And we've also got with us today another Nikki and Charlotte, who are campaigners from the English Collective of Prostitutes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So we're going to talk more about their work later on. Um, but first... Celebrations and frustrations. Leo, would you like to start? I would. Uh, I have one today. As you can hear, I'm very ill. That was a joke. I don't sound ill at all. I woke up this morning and I was sneezing and I had like, I was like covered in sweat and I was like, oh no, I've clearly got coronavirus. So I I was going to do extra work today and I sent a message to... um, the sort of company that employs me to do that sometimes and I said this happened do you want me to go in I think like you know I'll probably be fine it's probably just a cold but the government does recommend self-isolation in this case um and they're like so I wake up at six o'clock in the morning get on the tube and everything and at bank station my phone connects to the wi-fi and the text comes in and says no best not go home so then I go home again I'm back in bed again by 7 30 and I sleep till midday um but I missed out on half a day of pay and a free haircut. We actually get paid to have a haircut uh, when I have these fittings. Um, and I just and I woke up at midday totally fine. Like I'm not even sneezing, clearly not sweating. And I just feel really stupid for having told anyone that I felt, I felt ill. It was completely unnecessary. It does sound like you overreacted a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Thing is, like I don't really like. Obviously, it would be unpleasant if I got it, but. It's just if I do have it, it's more irresponsible of me to give it to other people because obviously other people are more vulnerable than me. Um, I think the guidance is like people who are 70 plus are more vulnerable, 80 plus or something. Um, and on when you're an extra, there are a lot of sort of people who are retired from regular mm. work and who um, are there. And if I give it to someone who could die from it and I, I'm responsible for someone's death, then I just can't cope I with that. I respect your... Um... But it's just, I think I did too much thinking and actually I'm Maybe fine. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. Nikki, how about you? Any frustrations or celebrations? Well, when you asked me, I was thinking, goodness, I can't think of one thing. And then I suddenly remembered that uh, we're based at a women's centre, the Crossroads Women's Centre, and there's some other women's organisations based there. One is called the All African Women's Group, which is a large group of women, asylum seekers and refugees who do fantastic work kind of campaigning for their rights and against detention and deportation. And they had a meeting on Tuesday, and one of the really long-standing members uh, arrived and they always have a section at the beginning of the meeting where they announce victories and she kind of popped up and she said yes I've won my status and that is really massive in any case but it's particularly a massive in her case because she's been waiting 17 years and her claim has been closed and she had to fight to get it reopened and so it's been a very and all that time in especially in the last years she's been completely destitute without any income whatsoever so at least now she's got status here she got full refugee status and she can apply for benefits and actually get an income and live and start you know start a different kind of life that's amazing that i think feel like that's like Puts one of the best celebrations, celebrations that we've had on the show so that's great Charlotte, how about you? I think you that's a big that enough victory for the both of us. <laughs> and I'll just say, yeah, what she said. <laughs> I actually... Um, is it big enough for me to share as well? Because well, I didn't think no, of that, anything. That is such a cop-out. <laughs> 
Oh, God, I'm trying to think really fast. Um, you don't have to say one, it's okay. My celebration is that I went to the gym and I walked really slowly. What, on and the it was great. walking machine? On the walking machine, oh, yeah. yeah. But uphill and backwards and forwards and off oh, and well on done. again. Yeah. Um, my partner came back from the gym earlier today and um, she said that they'd run out of soap. <laughs> And so there was no soap and everyone's in really close proximity emitting a lot of sort of bodily fluids. It's just, I, my day has been tainted by You're coronavirus. trying to bring us back to coronavirus again and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that we don't go back there. So um, well done. on to the main topic of conversation. Um, Nikki and Charlotte have kindly joined us from the English Collective of Prostitutes. Can you start by telling us a bit more about what you do as a collective? Uh, yeah, we, uh, we're, at, we're an organisation of sex workers and supporters. We uh, started in 1975, and I know that's a long time ago, and it was a very different terrain then. Uh, but right from the very beginning, we said we're campaigning for two things, for decriminalisation and also for resources for women so that we can get out of prostitution if we want. And I think that made us quite different from other sex worker organisations that came after us because uh, many of them kind of... Uh, divided, I suppose, between along the kind of common stereotype of either happy hookers or poor victims. And we said, you know, we're neither. Uh, we do think sex work is work, but and, you know, we think it's a job, but we don't glamorise prostitution. And we think it's, in most cases, for women, it's the best choice out of a set of ba uh, bad choices. And um, so we've been going you know that many years quite a lot of years over 40 years and we have a national network and an international network with sister organizations in thailand a, a fantastic sex worker collective called empower and an organization in the u.s called u.s prostitutes collective and uh, yeah we work very closely with a whole set of other organizations internationally and we do kind of a combination of both campaigning but also fighting cases and I think that's quite important because it means that uh, you know women come to us and join the work that we're doing and many of us came into the organization because of uh, you know needing to fight against criminal charges or deal with violence and try and get justice. You know, so those kind of really concrete issues uh, are the stuff that we do day to day. Sounds amazing. So I wasn't aware that you had an international network like that. Yeah, it's really, really important for us. Uh, even when we were smaller than we are now, we always had an international network. And uh, we're also, I mean, we're very much connected to a, and work closely with a whole set of other women's organisations. And I think it's really important for the direction of your work and how you see issues. So, for example, you know, we're often uh, kind of wrestling with the issue of trafficking, which we can speak about later. But, you know, it's often very misrepresented um, what the issue is. And um, the fact that we work with Empower in Thailand means that it's much it's very helpful to us because you then see it from the situation of women in the global south who are trying to emigrate and who are prevented from doing so by forces that are trying to close the borders and the whole anti-trafficking initiative is part of that and so it kind of you know makes sure that you see it from the point of view of people with least power really mm. So on the 23rd of January, charges were withdrawn against two women prosecuted for brothel keeping. Can you tell us a bit more about why these charges were unlawful and how you went about challenging them? 
Yeah, so just some background information about the case. So these were two Brazilian women who were walking as a pair out of a flat for safety because when you have someone else there, if there's anything that happens to you, you have basically a witness or somebody to help you out of that dangerous situation. And so they were raided by the police and then they were charged with managing each other and that the premises in which uh, they were working out of was deemed a brothel. So in the UK, uh, if there if there are, um, there's more than one woman working indoors out of the same location, and th- those and those women may not all be doing sex work, they can be, for example, a receptionist or a maid. That place will still be counted as a brothel. So a lot of women choose to work indoors for safety, but they are exactly being penalized just for that by working indoors. And so when the police raided them, uh, they actually confiscated all the money that they earned, that they had with them, and they didn't give them a receipt for it. And uh, when the women were interrogated at a police station, they were kept there overnight. And so initially they were charged with permitting each other, I'm sorry, uh, they were charged with brothel keeping and managing each other. But then as time went on, we saw that the charges were then dropped to permitting each other to work in that space. And that, of course, didn't make any sense because none of their names were on the um, rent of the place. They didn't own the place in any right. And then as the case went on again, we saw that the prosecution then again dropped it uh, to a lower kind of uh, charge of a caution. So what the uh, prosecution kind of gave them as a deal was if you accept this criminal caution, which will be on your record for a 100 years, uh, and that you agree that we keep all the proceedings from the raid, that um, that you would, you know, go off with a caution instead of having to, you know, um, accept the charge, which may land you in even more serious um consequences. So basically, it was unlawful because, number one, they weren't exploiting each other in any sense, and number two, they were working together for safety, and that we we see that when the prosecution kept dropping the charges, that they realised that there was nothing there, that there was no basis for them um, prosecuting these women, and that they just wanted to profit off the criminal proceeds. And this, of course, was made worse by the fact that these women were Brazilian and of, and the fact that the prosecution could probably get away with it because they were um, migrants to this country and that they may not you know, know how to navigate the system well, that they were very well fearful of what would have happened to them given that they are now embroiled in this legal dilemma. Mm. Do you find that is that a pattern with these police raids that... Um, racism plays a part or that migrant communities are targeted? Yes, so this, that's actually very clearly um, exhibited in like the outcomes of the case. So uh, I was there when we went to the court and um, so there were two women uh, who, are, who uh, we were working with. So one of them decided to plead not guilty and to you know f- continue fighting the case and the other woman uh, decided to actually accept the caution and was actually on her way to the police station to sign the caution and, you know, get all of that started. And then the hearing was delayed for two hours. We finally go in and the Crown Prosecution comes in and says, oh, OK, we are dropping the case. And 
at that moment, we were just calling up the other woman, just like, if you are at the police station now, do not sign anything because your charges just got dropped. And um, the, the thing was, the woman who decided to accept the caution, uh, she had a less uh, stable immigration status than a woman who decided to fight the case. So you can just see that the precarity of your immigration um, situation directly relates to your access to justice. Mm. And that um, I would also like to add that a big reason why the charges were eventually dropped was because the ECP actually put out uh, an action alert to our network of people. And we basically gave people uh, a template in saying that this is what is happening to these two women. Please write in to the Crown Prosecution to let them know that what they are doing is wrong and to hold them accountable to what they are doing uh, to these migrant women. And I think that actually created a lot of pressure that, you know, that the Crown Prosecution was not only going against these two women, but a whole network of people mm. that were standing up for them and that, yeah, held, holding basically them accountable to their own actions. So being kind of situated in a wider movement was really important for fighting these unfair charges. Definitely. You've also had a report come out about Brexit. Can you tell us a bit more about what Brexit will mean for EU migrant sex workers? Yes, we uh, have a lot of... We have a big kind of network of Romanian women in our organisation and... Um, for, for the last kind of three or four years, really, in particular, since about 2016, um, and especially after, once the decision to have the referendum on Brexit happened and then after the vote, we, like many other people, saw a big increase in racist attacks um, against migrant sex workers. And generally, but particularly in relation to, you know, the women in our group, we saw a big increase in, in racist attacks against migrant sex workers. And... Um, the other impact was is that pl the police really um, got much worse in terms of targeting people and they started doing various illegal activities, for example, stopping women on the street and demanding their ID and saying, we're only going to give you your ID back if you produce a ticket back home. Or kind of keeping women in detention overnight for no reason whatsoever. Uh, there was a spate of kind of quite a lot of violence on the street in one of the areas where the women were working. When they came forward to report that, what they found was that the police were more interested in prosecuting them for prostitution offences or uh, investigating their immigration status. So it was women working both on the street and in premises that were basically being told you don't have a right to be here because sex work is not a legitimate job and they actually wrote that on some of the women's papers saying sex prostitution is not a legitimate job and at that time now of course we're in a new phase with the settled status applications but at that time Romanian women had to establish that they were exercising their treaty rights which mm. meant you had to show that you were in some way economically active and so the police were basically saying that even though this group of women were working supporting families back home, supporting themselves and families here, they weren't actually working and they were using that to deport women. And some women did get deported, but we did stop a lot of deportations and we documented all those injustices in a dossier called Sex Workers Are Getting Screwed by Brexit because the focus had been and it had got so much worse after the Brexit decision. But uh, now we've also produced a, a, a right sheet, which is a right sheet against deportation specifically for sex workers. And it kind of looks at the legal precedents that we found out 
out at that time showing that sex work has been in some very narrow areas uh, ruled to be legitimate work. So, for example, if you're working on the street, you're seen as a self-employed person by some, by some, um, you know, by the ILO, you know, in Europe. So we found we put together those precedents. We put it into a right sheet and it's been widely circulated. We're in the course of translating it into various languages. But it's been a very important kind of self-help tool for people to actually know their rights and defend themselves against police illegality and racism. Mm. That sounds really useful. It sounds like you're producing a lot of really, really useful stuff on rights. And you also do a lot of campaigning as well. And we heard that you're making a zine about the decade of struggles by sex workers. Yes. That sounds amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more? It just arrived from the printers and I haven't seen it yet. Um, Yes, it was uh, because... Soho in central London is has been traditionally a red light area, an area where sex workers have worked for over 250 years, we actually found out. And our network has been active there since the 80s. And um, so we wanted to kind of... It's been a very important struggle, a sex worker-led struggle against raids and closures, but it's also been a battle against gentrification. And it's a battle that's been led by sex workers but has worked closely with others in the local community who really see their interests aligned with sex workers because people would say that if sex workers get evicted, then we will be next. You know, the gay community, you know, people kind of, you know, not of the mainstream, people that see themselves as kind of outlaws in various different ways. And uh, so we fought a number of, I mean, the Police have targeted that area of Soho on a different occasions. The most recent and big was in 2013-14, where 250 police literally descended on the central, this little area of Soho. They broke into women's flats with riot gear and dogs. They handcuffed women on the floor. They dragged women out in front of the media, some women in their underwear. You know, it was a really brutal and harsh kind of attack on sex workers and then they imposed closure orders on women and we went to court and fought them it took many months it took about three or four months we worked very hard to counter the police kind of public relations line because they would go in front of the media and in front of the cameras saying we needed to do these raids to save victims of rape and trafficking It was a complete lie. No victims of rape or trafficking were found. But what people got prosecuted for was either prostitution or for things like parking fines or immigration offences. And so it was a very big and important battle. And it was important because sex workers really were able to come together despite our illegal status and despite divisions among us, really, because it was women of different nationalities. Some women were actually sex workers. Others were receptionists. It was different ages, you know, different backgrounds and experiences. And people really came together. We had mass meetings in kind of clubs in Soho. And we really did take on the police and the courts. And it took a long time. It took a few months to turn it around because when we first went to court, we lost every single case. It was 20 different court cases that we were dealing with. And we kept on losing. And then we start, Then we kind of made a concerted effort to try and get publicity. And as soon as we started getting some um, articles in the paper and, in fact, Rupert Everett, to his great credit, really stood up for sex workers in Soho. 
and he helped with the publicity. And once we started getting the information out into the public domain, the whole atmosphere changed and we started winning in court. And we actually succeeded in getting every single flat reopened apart from two, which was really a massive um, struggle. And we wanted to document that because it's not the only time in the only place that sex workers have led a struggle like that and have overcome very difficult obstacles to be able to to work effectively like that and also defeated an attempt at gentrification because that's what was behind it. It was the Mm. police, Westminster Council and the property developers that had made a kind of partnership and were, we were really up against that. And we won. And it's really, it's not often that, you know, it's a kind of a David and Goliath and it's not often that David wins. Yeah. So we wanted to document it. Absolutely. And where can we access that? Well, we we'll have uh, have it through our website and we're going to the Soho Strike to uh, on International Women's Day on Sunday. And we're also having an open day at our Women's Centre and we'll have the zine available there. It's the first run, so you have to grab your... Copy. <laughs> so while it's hot. Yeah. What are the details of the event that you're running at the centre? So uh, for International Women's Day, Crossroads Women's Centre, which is located in Kentish Town, uh, it's having an open day. There's going to be food. There's going to be music. All the uh, organisations based at the centre are going to give little talks and show films about, about about what they do. And if you're interested in just knowing more about the centre or volunteering with us, you're really welcome to come down. And so at Crossroads Women's Centre, we actually host, uh, we actually uh, house many organisations apart from the ECP. We have, for example, Win Visible, which is a disability uh, rights uh, group, and also War, which is Women Against Rape, as well as uh, organizations like, for example, the Men's Net Payday Network, as well as the Queer Strike. So uh, we will also be featuring, actually, a lot of the uh, work of our partner organizations, not only of ECP, but of all the other uh, international kind of, like, uh, organizations we are in contact with, because it wouldn't be International Women's Day without it. And also, it's um, if you decide to, you know, bring your children uh, along to the center, I mean, do let us know and, and they will be cared for because we do think that that is a worthwhile thing to do and that, um, you know, going to these kind of community events for self-help should not come at the expense of childcare. So if people want to find out more on social media, is there somewhere where they can find or online? Uh, find more information? Yeah, the uh, it's uh, being hosted by the Global Women's Strike. It's a bit confusing. There's two women's strikes, but it's the Global Women's Strike and we have a Twitter and a website, so the details are there. It's 12 o'clock till 5 o'clock, and it's in the Crossroads Women's Centre in Kentish Town. Great. Um, we're kind of coming towards the end now. Um, I was just thinking it might be helpful. A lot of the, the things that you've talked about have been really illustrative, I think, of how um, criminalisation is, is really, really harmful for sex workers and why de- decriminalisation makes sense. But... For our listeners that maybe haven't heard so much about decriminalisation, can you explain what it is and what it would mean for sex workers? Yes, uh, I mean, we're helped in that because uh, there is one country of the world that's actually decriminalised prostitution, which is New Zealand. Fundamentally, in this country, even though it's not illegal to be a sex worker, it's illegal to work on the street, you get prosecuted for loitering and soliciting, and it's illegal, as Charlotte said, for more than one woman to work from premises and you get prosecuted for brothel keeping. There's a lot of other associated laws, such as controlling, but none of them 
help sex workers. They all make it more difficult and dangerous for sex workers to work. And what they did in New Zealand is that they basically abolished all the prostitution laws. They did not abolish laws against rape and violence. They did not abolish laws against trafficking and abuse or exploitation. We always have to say that because people think somehow if you abolish the prostitution laws, it's just a free-for-all. That's not what happened in New Zealand. They did it in 2003, and five years after that, they did a very thorough government-led review, and they found that there'd be no increase in prostitution, that women felt more able to come forward and report violence to the police, and in fact, the whole relationship with the police had been transformed, that you know, there were many other benefits to uh, starting with people's safety and welfare and they actually asked sex workers a few years after that what had been the impact on them of decriminalization and 90 percent said that they had more employment human civil um, and legal rights which was very crucial but one of the other things i think is very important they said that they actually had more power to refuse clients and i think that's one of the kind of it's like the litmus test really it's a test of whether of how much ex, how much of an exploitative situation you're working in because if you can uh, refuse clients it means that you have more power in that kind of working environment so we are they also ha- in New Zealand has a clause that um, means that migrant sex workers are excluded from many of the protections of decriminalization so of course we don't want that but the fundamental model of New Zealand is is a good one because it was actually came from sex worker organizing and it came from a concern about safety and health and welfare and that's really an important it meant that it was a much better model than had been discussed or implemented elsewhere so what it would mean here is that uh, the laws would be abolished fundamentally and that uh, it, the first big thing is is that if you decriminalize prostitution it would reduce the stigma in the same way as when they gave uh, you know lesbian and gay people the right to marry that did mm. help reduce some of the stigma and discrimination that people faced and so and I always feel that with decriminalization the first biggest change is that you'd begin to find out who sex workers are you know you would find out that it's your mother and your auntie and your you know your daughter and the rest of it and it would really break down the division between sex workers and other women and other people generally because the one of the problems that we have which is that the way that sex work is framed is that it's uniquely different from any other issue and it's really not mm-hmm. I mean you know it's work like other work as I said it's not a great job or necessarily but it's a it's a way of earning an income and instead it's seen as something completely unique and different and so therefore the solutions are for example to try and crack down on prostitution by increasing the criminalization in a way that you wouldn't do with mm. any other kind of labor you would there looked for workers to have more rights so we really feel that decriminalization would completely change the terrain it would mean that there would be much greater safety health it would uh, deal with the police corruption and abuse you know it would mean that people wouldn't have criminal records on their record which prevents you getting out of prostitution and getting other employment it would really transform many people's lives thank you so much that's yeah that's a really helpful explanation that's about all we've got time for um, but thank you so much for coming on the show and hopefully We'll see you and some of our listeners on International Women's Day at Crossroads Women's Centre. You've been listening to Very Loose Women live on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can listen to us on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify. And you can listen to our back episodes as well. 
Um, you can follow us on Twitter at, at BLW Radio and on Instagram too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for having us.